Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday, so let's attack Parshas uh, Shoftim here, right in the middle of Elo. Uh, when you get to Shoftim, 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 Teacher, Lachon, all that, as I've perhaps mentioned, I'm sure I must have mentioned before, this is about politics with a capital P. You know, there's Aristotle's politics, you know, Plato's politics. Politics is the question of how to organize a society. Um, how do you regulate relations between people? Uh, what we call in English a social contract. How do you make it that Isha Israel Chaim blow that doesn't happen? That you know, you can walk down the street and nobody bothers you. There's law and order. But uh, what's the right system for that? Uh, what we call in English nonviolent conflict resolution. And this is called uh, politics. What is the proper or best form of government? This has been debated forever. Uh, do you want a monarchy? Do you want a dictatorship? Uh, do you want a democracy? Do you want a republic? These are all different. Do you want an oligarchy? And history shows all kinds of varieties of, uh, of situations like a patriarchy, a elders. The problem, as I've mentioned in the past, is the Torah is very unclear, and this week's Parsha is a perfect example of that. In fact, in fact it's the, the example that. You start talking about Shoftim and Shoftim. These are judges and cops. Well, okay, a judge is not somebody that runs a society, is it? A judge in America, at least, in Western culture, a judge is supposed to just administer the laws. But on the other hand, uh, in Judaism, as far as we can tell, the judges were also legislators, Correct? Uh, what we call a Sanhedrin, even though Sanhedrin is a word that's a Greek, so that came to be used in time by Shani. But nevertheless, um, in the way we understand it, uh, the role of the Shofate is not simply to adjudicate laws. It is that, of course. And today's Parsha does refer to that side of it. It's the Kipolei Dover Bein Dom Dom Bein Din Din. You know, when you have uh, issues and the, and the local court doesn't know, they take it to the higher court. And when you finally get to the Supreme Court, as I say, the Sanhedrin, as we come to call it later on, it says you should not depart from when they tell you right or left. You know, we have all that in this week's parish. No question about it. But it's hard for us who live in America or in a Western society who think strictly in terms of ju- judiciary as having a limited function to um, understand what the Torah is talking about because apparently they don't have an idea of just a limited function. The judiciary also acts as a parliament. And uh, they make laws and they uh, kind of run the government, sort of. When I say sort of, it's unclear. This is the problem with the Torah. It doesn't make anything clear when it comes to the political system. Because in this week's Parsha, as I'm sure you know, you have Shoftim, you have Shotrim, you also have Obo el or something like that, el Valevi. There's a special function of a Kohen and a Levi. They take cases to them. Uh, so there's some kind of elite ruling group in some sense or another. Uh, perhaps strictly in ritual matters, but it's not clear. And then, of course, you have the Melech. This is the partial where you have, when you come to a land, you want to make a king, do the following. Don't give the king too much power, or be literal. It says, don't give him too many wives, too much gold and silver. 
and too many horses. Okay, so the king has to live a relatively moderate uh, lifestyle. And make sure he's a Jew, by the way. Be careful. You know what I mean? That's just interesting. There are nations that have records of bringing an outsider to be the king, you know? So don't, so don't do that. Uh, that doesn't tell you a lot about what the king is supposed to do. Just tell you a few, a few things the king is not supposed to do. Uh, that leaves it up to the theorists who are, you know, more pro-king and less pro-king. Uh, for example, do I understand that other than the prohibitions you find in Parsha Shoftim, a king can do whatever he wants? In other words, in economy, king have lo yabr lo noshim, lo yabr lo susim, because of his olayar mode, that he can't do. And also, he has to have a safer Torah, and a levilti rum levava mecha, because become arrogant. I get that. And he has to be Jewish. That's all it says. So wait a minute. Am I to understand from that, that other than that, the king can mamash do whatever he wants? He can kill people if he feels like he can do anything he wants? Well, yeah. Meaning, there are those in Chazal and later on who understand that a king can talk do that. Others say, no, no, no. These are just examples of limitations on the monarchy. And from there, you, you know, infer that you should also impose other limitations on the dictatorial possible power of a monarch. Uh, and there are other Chazal and Ripsonim and people like that. Now take that approach. So what am I supposed to do? I'm sitting here in the year 2019 in Baltimore reading the Parsha. You're looking at the Parsha. So which is it? What is a king in Judaism? We don't know. I mean, we don't have any clarity on it. Let me be more explicit. In the Sefer Shoft, uh, what do you call it? Shmuel Aleph. I'm sure many know this. There comes a point where the people want a king and Shmuel and Navi's angry and he cuts them out and he gives a whole long famous speech and God is angry at them and the people insist we want a king anyway. Because you are getting old, they say to the prophet Samuel, and your kids are, are corrupt. So, what is the famous speech that Shmuel gives? He says, if you have a king, he'll be a tyrant. He'll take your, 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 your daughters, your sons, he'll draft them, uh, you know, he'll take your land. He'll do all kinds of tyrannical things. He'll tax you. Uh, remember, before there was a king, which for a couple hundred years, there was no king. There was no government. That's called the period of the Shoftim, Sefer Shoftim. It says explicitly, Bayami Mohaim, Ain Melch be Israel, Ish Kichal That happens to be the latest verse in the book of Shoftim. But it appears earlier also. So, guess what, guys? If there's no federal government, there's no federal taxes. If no state government, there's no state taxes. So that's a big uh, savings. So Shmuel's warning him against that. And he's also warning him against the potential tyranny. And people want a king anyway. You know, so he got him a king. Although it's interesting, they weren't so chutzpatic to say, we'll, we'll pick your successor. They were sufficiently respectful to say to Shmuel, we want a king, not a guy like you, but you pick him, because we know you, and you're honest and all that, and you'll have the best idea in mind. Let that be, okay, let that be. Now, what is the idea of a king, therefore? It's not clear. Listen closely. There's a machlokis in the Gemara, I believe in Sanhedrin, I think between Rav and Shmuel, I think, uh, and to Amaroim, at any rate, when Shmuel says, don't get a king because he will be a tyrant. Was Shmuel telling you that is Taka the Din? In other words, if you get a king, he'll be a tyrant because he's entitled under Torah law to be a dictator and a tyrant. So why would you want something like that? Or alternatively, was Shmuel simply saying, no, I'll be Din, a king is not allowed to be a tyrant. But they become tyrants. It, 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 you know, power uh, corrupts. And uh, it's almost impossible to have somebody with all that power 
and not become arrogant and tyrannical and, and all that, and dictatorial and so forth. So all the things that are in the Mishpat Amalucha, they, in the Gemara, they refer to this speech of the Prophet Samuel's Mishpat Amalucha, which means the political tract. Was this really the din, or was it not the din? He was just warning them that that will be the inevitable political uh, evolution of the of the office of monarch. My goodness, that's a gigantic machlokes. Let's say it's Rav Shmuel. Really? You don't know? These are Amaraim. They don't know whether the Torah empowers the king to be a total, complete dictator or the opposite. That's a biggie. Usually, we say you have a Malchogis Tanayim Marayim. Usually, it's some, some small aspect of a, a recognized did. You know, we all know the story of Malchus, but there's a question about, you know, tying a red shoelace on Shabbos, whatever, something like that. Little little things, right? You know, Shehiyah, uh, Chazara, uh, and all that. But this is a biggie, right? It's not a question whether the king has to read a Sefer Torah from right to left to left to right. They can hear in the Gemara. But whether a king is an institution, as an institution, which is granted by God, complete and total dictatorial power, so the king can kill whoever he wants, and the king can take whatever property wherever he wants, and so on and so forth. So it's a monster, you understand? It's like Hobbes. The government is a monster. Does the Torah really have such a concept? Or or not? That's a big one. And if Rabbi Shmuel debating it, then I submit to you that the tradition of exactly what the Torah meant in Parshish Shoftim by the time you already got to Namarayim, it was unclear anymore because the Jews didn't have a king for a long, long time. And it just, you know, if you have machlokas among the Chazal, then it means that there was an unclarity on the basic politics. And that, I believe, is the case, best as I can tell. That uh, we have Shoftim, we have Shoftim, we have Kohanim, we have Levim, and we have Amalek. And the Parsha Shoftim does not make clear how they relate to each other. So, for example, if you have a king, is it the king and his officials? that administer the government? Or does the king just simply preside over a highly restricted executive function, such as leading wars, but the day-to-day regulations and the legislation is left to the Sanhedrin? Uh, it's not clear. Uh, and you get all kind of, you know, instances in the Gemara, one way or the other way, just off the top of my head, because that's all I ever do if I speak with a podcast. I'm just talking off the top of my head. You think of um, Kibbush Yachid. Remember that uh, in the Gemara Gittin, I believe, where they talk about what's the status of the lands that King David conquered in war. Kibish Yachid. Shmei Kibish, Allah Shmei Kibish. David Melch was a Melech. If anybody was, he was a legitimate king. He was a from guy too. So, what is the basis of the debate in Chazal whether the lands conquered by King David, what they call Syria, let's say Syria, not exactly, let's say Syria. King David in his wars conquered Syria for a while. So the question is, do they become Eretz Yisrael and you need Shemitah and the Trumas and Meister and all that stuff, the agricultural laws. So what is the basis of calling it Kibbush Yachid? After all, didn't David lead a Jewish army of the whole Jewish people when he conquered it? So why is it called Kibbush Yachid? So one opinion, I think Rashi, if I remember correctly, says that uh, it was like Viet- Johnson in the Vietnam War, like Truman in the Korea. He uh, made war on his own authority, the royal authority, without getting a declaration of war from the Sanhedrin. Isn't that amazing? These ideas we have in modern American history, Korea, Vietnam, uh, Bush went into uh, Iraq in 2003 and all that business. Uh, They did it without a a formal declaration of war. Uh, And that makes it a kibbish yach, that makes the status of Syria uh, questionable. Uh, So, I didn't know that. I mean, is that right? That the Torah says you can't have a war unless Sanhedrin signs onto it? Like, where does it say that? So much is missing. 
from the Torah, and I'm talking about the Chumash now, it's particular our Parsha, because this Parsha, for some reason, Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't get around to this until just before his death, Shoftim Shoftim Titan Lebuchol Sharecha, leaves, for some reason, the Torah leaves the, the constitutional aspects of the um, of the formation or constitution of a Jewish government very, very unclear. And in Hanami, in Jewish history, after Moshe died, there were no kings. And Shoftim, as far as we can tell from the book of Shoftim, just popped up from time to time whenever there was a national emergency. And so what was the form of government for the next couple hundred years after the death of Moshe Rabbeinu? What comes out of the book of Shoftim is that uh, there was no government in general. Uh, each tribe did its own thing. Sometimes the tribes actually fought with each other, as we know. Each tribe did its own thing, and they must have settled local issues within the local tribal uh, community, uh, which is like anarchy. I mean anarchy with the in the real sense, not the pejorative sense. You know, the, the theory, the political theory of anarchy, which is government should be very local and small. That's as best as we can tell what, what happened time of Shoftim. Only when there was some crisis and, you know, the Jewish people would sin and there'd be an invasion, then God would pop up with some, what you and I call Shofet, you know, Devorah, Shimshon, Gidon, Osniel, those people. But that's, that doesn't cover 400 years, you know? And, uh, well, whether it does or not, it's a big debate among the, uh, I'm not going to get in that now, the chronology thing. But anyway, what is the form of Jewish government? Uh, let me put it to you this way. If you went to a from guy, say you go to Eretz Yisrael, you go to B'nai Brock and talk to a Shiva guy, and you say, suppose this Medinat Yisrael would switch over to be 100% from, then what kind of government would you have? You wouldn't have Netanyahu, you wouldn't have the Knesset, uh, you wouldn't let, uh, frankly, they wouldn't let women vote, they certainly wouldn't let Michal Shabbos vote. In fact, who says the public should vote Michal? Where do you see that in the Chumash, that the public should vote? Uh, the Torah gives a traditionalist, patriarchal notions in which the Zakanim, the elders of the tribes, kind of sort of organically move into leadership positions. I mean, uh, where you get that from? It doesn't, these words are not in the Chumash. All it says is, Shoftim b'shom titan l'cha And by the way, who is the one that's supposed to put it? Does the tribe get together and have some kind of a vote? What are the rules of that? Do the elders, by consensus, choose Shoftim and Shoftim? So much, as I keep coming back, is, uh, is missing. It's very interesting. Uh, so the exact delineation of the roles between the Shofet and the Shoter on the one hand, the Kohen and Levi on the other, and the Melch on the other, is out there to lunch. It's, 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 it's very unclear. And uh, that's why we've had such a, a funny history with, uh, with kings and, and governments. Let's put it this way. The Jews stink at politics. We haven't had an organized um, Jewish polity forever, you know. Uh, in, in all Jewish history, all the tribes were united for a very short period. If. See, Shal, Dovish, Shlomo, let's be generous. It's been 100 years. We've been around for 30 times 100 years. And, our, and, and, and 29 of those of centuries, we've not been able to get our act together. I'm talking about even way back when, when we had our own country. But you know, the kingdoms broke, broke into different parts, and they're fighting each other, and this. We're, we're not good at politics. Jews are good at some things and not good at others. As is true with every ethnic group. We're obviously good at business and money, things like that. The Jews are good at, the, at winning the Nobel Prize. I'm serious. But the Jews have never been good at politics, Jewish politics. Now, if Jews excel throughout history in politics, it's a Geisha politics. You understand? You'll have a Disraeli, you have a Kissinger, you have, you know, that sort of thing. At the Geisha politics. Yosef, back in the time of Egypt, 
but the Jews are never good at Jewish politics, as far as we can as, as far as we can tell. Which uh, therefore has led to all kind of very interesting kind of phenomena. Who in the Mefarshim, if I would recommend to you, not just to listen to me pop over here, but who do you want? Who talks about all this in an intelligent way? Uh, what comes to mind is um, two of the very later people from the Middle Ages, Duran and Barbanel. Isn't that interesting? What's called the Drushes Duran. I would recommend you take a look at this week's parsha and the Barbanel. The Ron, is, I'm talking about the Ron in the back of the Gemara, you know, Nisan of Gerona. Nisim of Gerona. You know, the Ron, Chadishi Ron, the Ron in the back of the Gemara. One of the great Rishonim. And uh, in addition to writing on all that Gemara stuff, which makes him famous in the Yeshivas, he also has a collection of like 14 or 15 uh, Drashos, which are not really speeches, I don't think, they're more like essays. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, Jewish uh, rabbis don't write essays, right? I mean, Do you have any essays from Rashi? Do you have any essays from Tosas? Do you have any essays from uh, the Rajba even? I'll tell you he writes essays. The Rambam, he has some, like the Gerza makes him, the Gerza Shema, the Gerza Tema, and that sort of thing. The Rambam is famous as an essayist. I'm saying something interesting over here, right? Uh, you know, the, 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 classically, the Shonamar, rabbis don't do this. And the Ron, these are the two essayists that I can think of, off the top of my head, um, who write this uh, sort of thing. And in the Drushes of Ron, each of these, what they call Drushos, are like essays. And the 11th one, and by the way, the Drushes of Ron is out now in nice editions and, and the Kudus and all the rest of it. In uh, the 11th one, he does in Parsha Shoftim. So it's like a deconstruction of the Parsha Shoftim. I kid you not. And in there, the Ron at least is giving thoughtful consideration to the political questions that I just raised. And he's indeed asking the question, why do you have Shoftim, why do you have a Melch? What's the role of one, what's the role of the other? And uh, the Ron comes up with his uh, famous um, uh, insight, uh, which is uh, very, very interesting, but still it doesn't type all loose ends. And his take, it goes as far, I just did this in my shoulders tonight. The, the, the Ron's take goes like this. How can you run, Duran says, a society based on the Torah? Torah is kind of ridiculous if you put into actual practice, meaning, how can you have the criminal element in which you can't convict anybody according to the Torah without Adim, two Adim, <coughs> excuse me, and a Hasra? <coughs> I'm sorry. And, uh, the, and the guy has to be Matar Atolamisa. He says, I know that what I do is Chaimis anyway, I'm doing it anyway. I mean, these are ridiculous uh, uh, conditions for running society. Suppose in Baltimore, Maryland, or New York, anywhere else, you said, I'm not going to get a conviction unless I go to the perpetrator before the perpetrator commits the crime, let's say shoots people, and two witnesses come and tell that perpetrator, don't you do this. And the per- You know and I know, the whole country be full of murderers who get away with, with, with it. All you have to do is shoot to aid him, for example. So why would the terrorist set a thing like that up? You get it? It's a, it's a good question he's raising. Why would the Torah create all those rules and regulations and extre- what you and I in English would call an extreme form of due process if it's not realistic? He himself says, it's Marba Shofchadamim So why would you do that? Um, there are many other laws like that. I'll tell you one that I think of that <laughs> Duran doesn't mention. That's Groma. Uh, or in Shlichadar Vera. 
uh, I mean, this is just, these uh, suggest themselves. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the think, for example, Groma's putter. So I want to kill you, you who are listening out there, and I want to do it legally. Meaning, I want to kill you in a way that I will not be punished by the legal system for killing you. It's not so hard. All I have to do is put a time bomb in your house or in your car. Uh, because once there's a time gap, it'll go off in a half hour. It's a groma, a groma's putter. I mean, you're high but Shemayim, but the type of person who's thinking about killing somebody doesn't care about Dini Shemayim. So how can you run a society in which you literally let the mafia go around and bump off people? All they have to do is make it a time bomb or something along those lines, right? Uh, you know, a speed uh, trap or something, you know, the car should have turned over. That's uh, literally getting away with murder. Uh, Groma Benazikin is putter. Same thing, if I want to damage your house or cause your property, let's say I want to blow up your car. I put a time bomb, I blow up your car or your house or anything like that. Groma Benazikin is putter. Uh, why? The American law doesn't have that. Why would the Torah have such rules that seem to be um, impossible to fulfill. It's ridiculous. It creates a society in which criminals are are free to use the loopholes to get away with the worst crimes in the world. Uh, here's another one. What's stopping me, me, myself, and I, for doing a Mayor Lansky? I'm going to set up... I'm going to go on the, on the internet. I'm doing a Murder Incorporated. You want somebody bumped off, just come to me. You pay me the right amount of money, and I will hire assassins, and they're going to shoot the person uh, that you want shot or we can cut their throat or garrot them or whatever you feel like. And the idea is like this. Let's say I, I pay somebody to go do the um, the murder. It's not my fault. Uh, you all know that. If uh, if somebody tells somebody else to do an Avera, including murder, it's not the Mashalach that's Chayev, it's the Shliach. So I pay these guys if I can find low lies who will be willing to make a living by killing people, and you always can. History demonstrates that's easy to find. Uh, I can operate uh, totally, uh, you know, with, with impunity. I can be the godfather, you know, wasn't Corleone or something. And uh, and it's like, why would the Torah make a rule like that? All these questions are raised by the Drusha Saran. And what he ends up coming up with, he read inside, I'll tell you, I'm giving you advice, giving you a text to look at tomorrow in Shul. Drusha Saran, number 11. Uh, and what he does is, he says, that this is Mishpat Tzedek, that by having extremely high bar for conviction, the Torah is telling you uh, pure law, God's law, pure law. And what does that mean? These are how, if a society f- conducts itself purely according to the Torah, and has these very hard, uh, uh, high bars for convicting people, but at the same time, most people, 99.99% of the time, don't do these crimes. Then you have a what we would call today in English a Torah society. And Duran says that brings divine Shekhinah down and things just go good for the Klai Yisrael. Uh, the, I think he talks to the Shefo Elohim. Divine Shefo will rest among the Jewish people. Basically, you run the show, Shalom Kedech HaTeva. You know where you get, in my opinion, you know where you get an example of this? Shmuel Anavi. Remember the book of, of Shmuel? The story starts with uh, uh, Samuel being built, uh, what do you call it, being born, and then he, he his mother takes him to the Mishkan, and he's raised in Ailey, a coin, you probably remember this, and then Ailey's sons are corrupt, and they have a battle with the Philistines, and the Plishtim kill them all, and capture the Ark, isn't that right, the Battle of Ophi? 
and uh, Ailey dies from grief. It's just a complete disaster. Uh, and then what happens? Shmuel, who's now growing up, becomes the popular leader of Klaiso. So the Jewish people just charismatically follow Shmuel. He's the real thing. He's a shofate, a mishpat tzedek, a navi. And so when the next time they have a trouble with the Philistines, you remember what happens? Shmuel said, let's all get together at mitzvah, have a davening session. He doesn't organize them like a, a king into an army. Let's have a davening session. I think at mitzvah. And he said, before we have the davening session, get rid of your TVs and get rid of your internet. And it says the people listened. You know, he was able to pull it off at that time. And they got rid of all their idols and all that kind of business. And then they have this big davening session. Meanwhile, the Philistines are marching to attack them. But God sends, I believe it was lightning and thunder, and he busts the plishtim. And uh, they're like destroyed or, and they run away. And then the Jews chase them uh, because it's always easy to chase a fleeing enemy. And they inflict a great defeat on the Philistines. And the plishtim return the territory that they take them from Kaisal back to the Jewish people. That's what the Ron, in my opinion, would say. See, you have Shefel, he, you have a divine intervention, so to speak, in, in affairs, and then you win that way, not through a traditional war. But you, okay, fine, so that's a perfect society. And once in a while, once in a blue moon, you get a shmuel and things come together in a positive, perfect storm, and everything is going great, and you run according to the Torah, and you get all these positive uh, spin outs. <laughs> the modern equivalent would be you see, if all of the, uh, this theory would be if all of Medina Israel would all become from and nice and Shemr Shabbos and all the rest of it, all of a sudden the Arabs would have, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know, uh, some giant civil war that made the, the series of war look like a piker. Or as I mentioned yesterday, Iran is sitting on the biggest earthquake fault, I believe, and you have the earthquake of all earthquakes. You know, and that that sort of thing. The Shefa Elohim, the divine uh, intervention. But a lot of times it ain't like that, my friends, right? Like today and most of the time. And... If you run the Torah law according to Mishpatetic, according to pure Torah law, the Ron says, life will be impossible. All the murderers will, will run around. The murder incorporate will flourish. Grandma, grandma will, will flourish. Um, and all the other things. You won't be able to convict anybody. To supply, to fill in that gap, the Ron says, the Torah created the institution of Melech. The Melech is therefore like a certain temporary dictator. And he comes in and he says, I guess, maybe according to Torah law, you need to aid him. Not according to my law. Anybody who looks like a crook, I kill him. Anybody who looks like running a, a, a murder incorporated, I kill him. I don't need to worry about the Gemara laws and Shlich Advarver all the rest. Under my laws, I do whatever is necessary. So in English, we refer to this as martial law. You get it? Every law system in the world, to my knowledge, has what they call political crimes in which the rules are suspended. Even in American history, Abraham Lincoln suspended a constitution during the Civil War in many cases. FDR, the big liberal, did it to the Japanese in World War II, as you know. And it's happened other times as well. And the reason is because it's not necessity. You get it? It's necessity. Uh, you can't follow a law if it's, if it's turning everything upside down. Uh, so you have to apply emergency measures. Uh, and then when things go back to normal, they restore the normal laws. And so this is how the Ron sort of envisions the idea of a melech. The melech is there, as he puts it, to do the issue of a medini, to do what's necessary for a social contract, for the political in my opinion, I don't know this, I'm just a, giving opinion. My opinion, the Ron must have been thinking of the Roman dictator. In the, in the old Roman Republic, they would have a guy who would be for 12 months, if I remember correctly, and for 12 months he's a dictator, fix things, and then he resigns, and he'd go back to regular, to the Senate. 
So here also, the Melech seems to come across as some kind of person who's there for temporary purposes, but then when things go back to normal, the Melech like steps back and says to the Shoftim and the Shoftim, you go back to applying Torah law. You understand? Now we can do it. Because when you have a community where everybody's genuinely from, so crimes aren't going to happen. I mean, you know, once in a blue minute, anything can happen. But generally speaking, not going to happen. I always say, my sister lives in Israel, in Ramapolin. You know, that's where the eggshells are, and uh, in north of Jerusalem. And I've been there many times. And if you walk around the neighborhood, there are a lot of warrens and holes in the ground. And uh, because it was built by this avant-garde architect, Safdi, back in the 60s, I think, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And he did all these, uh, uh, you know, unusual architectural shtick. And it's really perfect for crime. If it was in Baltimore, my goodness, be a, every hole in the ground, every nook and cranny that you can't see in the public would be a, a drug haven. But it's not. Why not? Everybody's from, so therefore they don't do that. So that's what they mean by Shaftas and Mishpat But a lot of times it's not like that, therefore you have the king. This is the suggestion of the Ron. It makes a great deal of sense, but there are holes in it also, because it doesn't say in the Torah the king is only there temporarily, and then he should resign afterwards or, or withdraw and hand it back over to the uh, Sanhedrin. But maybe the, maybe the, I mean, you know, the Ron knows better be. So maybe that's how the system was supposed to work. That's not how it actually worked. That's not how Shoal, Dovish, Shlomo, and all the other kings operated. None of them said, okay, now that things are good, we're moving back, and you guys take over. Uh, the rabbis come back into power, and all the rest of it. So it's very, very uh, unclear uh, when you look at the actual historical record you know, from the Tanakh. The, so you want to look at the Drushes Aran um, on this week's Parsha, plus one more person. And that is, you want to look at the, if you can, you look at the Abarbanel on this week's Parsha, uh, who goes to great lengths because the Abarbanel, who lived a century after the run. It's just interesting to me. These are two people, one in the 1300s and one in the 1400s, two big uh, rabbis, uh, but not your typical rabbis. And by that I mean the Ron kind of is, because he was a Ron, you know, he was a Rosh Hashiva and all the rest of it. Although he ran a YU, people do not know this. The Ron had a Shiva, I believe, in Barcelona, was it Saragossa, I think, Barcelona, in the 1300s, where they also had English studies, a philosophy, which means Limude Chol. I don't know how they pulled that off, but uh, that's where it did. That's why his students like Chazda Kreskis and the others knew uh, secular stuff as well. You don't usually associate the Ron with, like, YU or whatever. But uh, but it was. I got that. It's, by the way, I didn't notice until about five, six, seven years ago myself. I saw this in Warren Harvey's book on Chazay Kraskis, which is a magisterial, uh, it's in Hebrew, uh, introduction. But uh, uh, such was the case. So that means if they had philosophy that included political philosophy, so the Ron and his Talmudim, not only doing the Morashitosis and all that, but must have been considering issues such as I just described. Well, how do you do Shoftim Shoftim, and how do you do Melech? Uh, where he lived in Spain, the exact position of king versus the nobles and the judges and all was not 100% clear either. And the other one is the Abarbanel. And the Abarbanel, of course, was not a rabbi exactly in the regular sense, but uh, he's this great Talmud Chacham and wrote on the whole Tanakh. What the Ron and the Abarbanel have in common, they have a lot not in common. I mean, the Ron was basically a Roman and Rosh Hashim, but the Abarbanel was not. But what they have in common is they both interacted fairly often with the Geisha government. Isn't that interesting? The Ron, I remember this, was appointed by the Queen of Aragon to be the one-man, uh, what should I call it, the one-man appeals court. That if you didn't like what your local basin did, 
and he saw some crooked operation going on uh, in the kingdom of Aragon, which is what they call today Catalonia, you know, the, uh, what's it, the eastern part of Spain, where Barcelona and Valencia and Saragossa, those places are. Uh, remember last year they tried to break away in Spain, wouldn't let them? That's the area where the Iran was. And, uh, and the Rajma and many others. And uh, the Ram was appointed by the Queen of Aragon to be a royal official in charge of Jewish law. That they, in other words, he, they, she reposed great confidence in him, which means he dealt with the royal government all the time. And the Abarban, all of that you probably know, was Mamsta, the, the treasury minister and the IRS director for the King of Portugal and the Queen of Castile and the King of Aragon, you know. So these guys actually interacted with the Geisha governments quite a bit. As opposed to somebody like Rashi or Tosas or Ramban even or anybody like that, who rabbis, they lived their lives, as far as we can tell, as isolated as, as circumstances permitted from the Goyim, as, as isolated as circumstances permitted, uh, and to the degree possible, they only dealt with Jews, not the Ron and not the Barbanel. The circumstances didn't permit it in, in their particular case. So maybe that's the reason they give a great deal of thought to these political questions. And if you look at the Barbanel and Pasha Shoftim, my goodness, he has a long arichas on um, the question of kings and uh, non-kings. And what's the right form of government? Uh, if you, you can um, speak to the people listening to this. If you can read Hebrew, get the Barbanel, and you go through on the part where it says you get a kiss of all arts and be a, a simalai melech. And in his best style, he gives you all the uh, mafarshim. If you can't read, you know, he says, this is the opinion of the Rambam, and this is the opinion of the Ramban, and this is the Tosefta, and this is, uh, you know, the Ralbag, and all that sort of thing. If you can't read the Hebrew, here's how you get the English. If you get that Menashe ben Israel book, The Conciliator, which is online, it's called The Conciliator by Menashe ben Israel. It's online. And you go to uh, that parsha, which is, uh, I guess, in. Uh, in uh, Dvarim, maybe it's in the book of Shmuel, I think it's in Dvarim, he gives, Menashe ben Israel translated from the Abarbanel, like word for word, in Spanish, and then, what you have online is, it's translated in English, in the middle of the 1800s, I spoke about this a couple weeks ago, and you can see the whole thing yourself, uh, you know, here's the, the, the Tosus, and the Sefta, and the, uh, you know, the Renisim, and the uh, Ralbag, and all the rest of it, and it's a very famous, because, when the Avarimel gets to his own opinion, he says he thinks that the king's ship ideas thinks, and he gives a historical disquisition because the Avarimel was uh, secularly uh, educated. And uh, he says, look throughout history. Whenever you've had monarchies, it's bad news. They go down, down, down. Whenever you have uh, republics, uh, he doesn't mean a republic like that's what you have in America, but you have an aristocratic republic, they go up, up, up. For example, look at Rome, he says. When Rome was a republic, it was going up, up, up. When they switched to a monarchy, to an emperor, when Augustus Caesar and afterwards, they went down, down, down. Look at all the weirdos they had as emperors. Tiberius, Caligula, uh, this one, that one, you know. Uh, it took Rome down. So, uh, according to the Ram, Abarbanel's very uh, famous and controversial opinion, the, he says that the institution of Melech that you have in this week's Pasha and Shoftim is a bedieven and not a chachila. Kisavol oritz, v'yomarta, osimolai melech. If you come to the land of Israel, and you go crazy, and you say, I want to have a king, because everybody else in the Middle East has a king, so I want to be quote-unquote normal, so at least don't get a guy. 
So the Ramban, I mean, I'm sorry, the Barbarian basically says it's like a fast toar. Remember, this coming up next week's parsha. You see a beautiful girl on the battlefield. So this is what you do in order to uh, stay with her. That's a mitzvah. Well, Dibur Tor Sahara. Yeah, you know that, right? Which means you're going to be in battlefield. You can't control yourself. So at least do it this way to to lessen the uh, the negative. Same thing with the king. You shouldn't have a king. You go crazy and you want a king, at least don't give the king too much money, too much gold, and, and all the rest of it. That's a very remarkable uh, essay uh, of the Barbanel on this subject. And he knew kings better than anybody else because he was tight with Ferdinand and Isabella and some of the other monarchs at that time. And later on, he worked as a uh, uh, sort of a professional diplomat for some of the Italian states. Uh, he was quite a guy. So uh, he's saying king's a bad idea. If the Torah says it, it must mean like this. Don't smoke. If you got to smoke, use a filter. But really, it's better not to smoke. So don't get a king. If you got to have a king, don't give him too much horses, gold and silver, and power, and all that sort of thing, and make him read a safer Torah. But really, it'd be better not to have a king. It'd be better to have a republic. Uh, this, Abarbanel has always been very controversial because the Jewish religion, whether you like it or not, is committed to the idea of a king. Three times a day, if not more, you pray for a king. You say, That's a... Uh, shall I say a little bit roundabout language for saying we pray for Mashiach. The Mashiach is supposed to be a king in traditional Jewish thought from the house of David. So if you want a king, that means you're not allowed to ask the question, why do I want a king? Why do I want a republic? Why do I want something else? As I told you before, you ask the average guy today in Eretz Israel, from kid, what would be the perfect uh, government for the state of Israel? Uh, give, give it over to the Gedolim, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, somebody like it, run it. Uh, you know, like that. You ask a Satmar, oh, it should be the Satmar Rebbe. You ask a blah, 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 blah. Each one will say, my religious leader, give him the uh, complete power. That's like Plato, you understand? Plato in the Republic says, you get the smartest people and then give them total power. Because the public is too dumb to know what's good for them. Uh, you should want the person in there to legislate for you because he knows better for you than you know what for you, what's for you. We have this nowadays in medicine, for example. You know, uh, if they say it's an epidemic, everybody should take a measles uh, vaccination. You don't say, let's the public vote on it or something like that. The doctors say, no, no, no. It's going to happen. You have an epidemic. Therefore, everybody's got to get a, a needle. You know, th- that kind of notion, uh, Plato calls it the philosopher king. Uh, we don't have that in the parasha. Instead, you have a hodgepodge. And uh, anyway, so I'll just leave off by saying this very, very interesting parasha. If you look at the Drushes Arana, you look at the Barmanel, you'll see... A lot of uh, very interesting food for thought. And the hour is late with that. I wish you a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.